Welcome to Alaska Black Caucus. Authentic, bold, committed. Good evening. I am Jewel Jones, a member of the Alaska Black Caucus, serving on the Health Committee, an organization that champions the lives of Black people in the areas of health, economics, justice, and education. Thank you for joining us tonight. Conversation, COVID-19 vaccinations for you. Please remember that this conversation is being recorded for rebroadcast, so please keep yourselves on mute. Please welcome tonight's moderator, Teresa Burvale, who will introduce our panelists. All right. Thank you, Joel. Hello, everyone. My name is Teresa Bevel. I work at Providence in Anchorage, and I'm a member of the Alaska Black Caucus Health Committee. I am honored and humbled to be the moderator for today's session. I would like to introduce the panelists. We are just so excited to have this conversation and grateful for the panel of presenters providing us with expert information and variety of perspectives on insights on the topic of COVID-19 vaccinations for youth. As part of preparing for today's session, we have a list of questions that I'll pose to the panelists. Our goal today is to provide you information so you can make informed decisions for you, parents, caregivers, families, and your children to deepen not just your knowledge, but equally important, our sensitivity of issues and needs pertinent to the environment of COVID-19 for youth. Thank you again to our panelists. And first, I would like to introduce Dr. Dina Bishop. Dr. Bishop began her Alaska educational career in 1991. She served several years as superintendent in Matsu before being named as Anchorage School Superintendent in 2016. Dr. Bishop has invested time in many new and innovative programs which have resulted in greater opportunities for the community and students for generations to come. We are so grateful to you. She holds a bachelor's degree in education, a master's degree in educational administration, and a doctorate in learning assessment and system performance. She's married and has two daughters, a son and a grandson. Next, we have Dr. Annie Zink. Dr. Zink is the chief medical officer for the state of Alaska Department of Health and Social Services Public Health Division since August 2019. Prior to that, Dr. Zink served 14 years in Matsu Regional Medical Center as the Emergency Department Medical Director. Her priorities as Chief Medical Officer include building stronger partnerships between Department of Health and Social Services Public Health Division and Alaska healthcare providers, providing support statewide to help establish healthier communities across Alaska. Dr. Zink received her medical degree from Stanford University School of Medicine and completed her residency at the University of Utah. Next, we have Dr. Rachel Leacher. She is a pediatrician endocrinologist at Alaska Native Medical Center, where she cares for babies, kids, and teens with hormone problems. She completed medical school at the University of Missouri her pediatrics residency at University of California, Irvine, and her pediatric endocrinology fellowship at University of Washington in St. Louis. She moved to Alaska from Missouri in 2011. And finally, we have Dr. Michelle Andrasik, who is a clinical health psychologist working to build and enhance partnerships with marginalized communities in clinical research with a focus on ongoing vaccine trials for HIV and COVID-19. She is the Director of Social Behavioral Sciences and Community Engagement for Fred Hutchinson-based HIV Vaccine Trials Network and the COVID-19 Prevention Network. She's also the Senior Staff Scientist in the Fred Hutchinson Vaccine and Infectious Disease Division and an Affiliate Clinical Professor in the Department of Global Health and Occupational and Environmental Medicine at the University of Washington. Dr. Andrasek has expertise in implicit bias and historical trauma 
and the utilization of community-based participatory research approaches and qualitative research methods. Dr. Andrasek also received her PhD in clinical health psychology from the University of Miami and her master's degree in health education and psychological counseling from Columbia University. Thank you all, and we are just so excited to have you all here tonight. Welcome again and thank you. One of the things we are doing tonight is a short presentation on national and Alaska state specific data on COVID vaccines for youth. At this time, I'd like to welcome our virtual audience, both locally and nationally. We are so glad that you are joining us for this panel discussion and presentation. We will take your questions at the end of the presentation, but please feel free to post your questions in the chat box. We will begin with Dr. Michelle Andrasek. Welcome, we look forward to your presentation. When we return from the presentation, we will invite panelists who will share any thoughts that they have on the presentation data. And then we'll continue with the questions and answer session. So thank you so much. Dr. Andresit, please begin when you're ready. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. And it's really a joy to be with you all this evening. Uh, I'll try to make this short and sweet. Uh, I just wanna go over um, vaccines and uh, specifically the Pfizer pediatric vaccine for um, five to 11 year olds. But before I go into vaccines, I think it's really important that we all really understand uh, what vaccines do, you know, and vaccines really work by teaching the body to recognize an invader like SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. So basically what vaccines do is they sound an alarm in the body, calling the fighter cells and antibodies, which are all part of our immune system into action. So it really you know, gets the body prepared so that when it does come in contact with a foreign invader, it is ready to mount a response. And the response really that the vaccines try to um, ensure that the body makes, like there's a their gold standard response, which is to prevent infection in the first place. And vaccines also work and the mRNA vaccine, so the Pfizer, the Moderna vaccine and the J&J vaccine, which also has emergency use authorization, they work really well at preventing disease and delaying disease progression. So keeping people out of the hospital and keeping people from dying. So when you really hear the efficacy of the vaccines, it's more in terms of what they're doing to prevent you from progressing to severe infection if you do come in contact with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. In all of these vaccines, I think it's really critical to know that no corners were cut for any of these vaccines. They all went through all of the phases of vaccine trials. Phase one, which is usually in about 30 to 50 people and is really looking at safety because phase one trials are the first time these trials are in humans. So it's all about safety. Is this safe in humans? And, and then if we find out that it's safe, then we go on to phase two trials, which is also looking at safety. And they're also looking at things like dosing, what kind of dose do we need to get the immune response that we want to make sure that people are protected. And then once you know we have still conferred that um, the, the product is safe and um, can potentially be effective, then it goes into phase three trials. And phase three trials are usually like three to 5,000 people. And the thing about COVID is that, you know, usually from phase one to phase three, these trials take, you know, anywhere from five to 10 years. But the US government ponied up a lot of money to make sure that as soon as we had the phase one data, we didn't need to wait and try to raise money to go into phase two. We could go into phase two as soon as we know, knew that it was good, you know, and that it was safe to go to phase two. And then once we had the phase two data, everything was set up for phase three. 
So we had all the sites together, or we had all the sites identified, um, everything was in place. And as soon as we knew what the dosing was and that it was safe, we went to phase three. The other thing that the resources from the federal government allowed, as you might remember, I said that phase three trials usually have about two to three thousand, maybe five thousand people in them. Each one of these trials had 30 to 40,000 people in them. And the more people you have, the sooner you can see outcomes and the sooner you can see differences between people who are in the placebo group or the control group and the vaccine group. And all of these trials used the gold standard of clinical trials, which is randomized double blind trials. That means that people were randomly assigned to the placebo, which is usually a saltwater injection in all of these trials, or the vaccine. And then neither the people who are in the study or the people who are conducting the trials know who is in what arm so that there's no bias. You know, the only people who know who's in the arm are an independent group of scientists, the Data Safety and Monitoring Board, to keep everything moving slowly and make sure everything is good. And I think it's really important to know these mRNA vaccines are not experimental. This science and this technology has been around for almost 20 years. This mRNA technology is utilized in Ebola vaccines. It's being studied in RSV, HIV vaccines. So it's really been around for a while. And this young woman here, Kazmikia Corbett and Dr. Barney Graham have been working on mRNA um, vaccines at the NIH Vaccine Research Center, like I said, for over 17 years. So mRNA is really incredibly exciting, actually. The first time in our lives, we are able to give our immune system a recipe. And so what happens is the mRNA is um, injected into the outer lining of the muscle cell. So it never gets into the nucleus. So it has no contact with the RNA of our cells, but it gets into the um, outside of the muscle cell and tells the muscle cell, hey, you know, produce these spike proteins, which is what's on a SARS-CoV-2 vi uh, virus. And then the body recognizes that as foreign and starts to mount the immune response. And within two to three days, once your body has sort of alerted, alerted the immune system, then it sort of flushes out everything that's not being utilized. So it's really an exciting science um, for our generation. I think what's really important to know about these um, pediatric trials is that um, you know the the same process that has been used for children for children's vaccines and other vaccine categories were used in COVID. So first, you know, vaccines are tried on adults. And then once we know that they're safe in adults, then we try them on the older children, you know, the 12 to 8, 17. And then once we know that they're safe there, then we start the trials in five to 11 year olds and then the pediatric trials. And so I think, you know, what is really critical to know is that um, COVID is a huge deal. Um, and, you know, I know that people are still saying that COVID is not a huge deal, but across the globe, we've had 255 million people, uh, over 255 million cases, and over 5 million deaths globally, and 762,994 of those deaths as of um, November 18th, that number has no doubt gone up, have happened in the U.S. and 842 of them have been in the state of Alaska. We can move to the next slide. And now we have vaccines available for children. And I think it's really important to note that we see large numbers of cases in children and, you know, large numbers of hospitalizations, We've had 292 deaths in children from birth to four years old, 
420 deaths in children age five to 17. So it is really a challenge for children. COVID is definitely impacting our children. And these deaths and hospitalizations are disproportionately in American Indian, Alaska Native, Black, African American, and Hispanic Latino communities. Next slide, please. And I think it's really important to know that um, you know, since the beginning of COVID, you know, in Alaska, there have been 16 cases of something called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And we're still trying to understand this. It's basically um, a syndrome where uh, different body organs uh, become inflamed. It could be the heart, the gastrointestinal organs, um, and, you know, the brain, you know, several, any organ. And, you know, they're still really trying to understand what's going on. The last time I was here at our NICU in Seattle, we had two children in the NICU with Miss um, C. You know, 43 people in your state have been hospitalized due to COVID-19. So COVID is really impacting children in Alaska, across the country, and across the world. And I think it's really important to note that COVID is the eighth leading cause of death in children, as we speak, the eighth leading cause of death in the United States. And many of the children who were hospitalized with COVID were previously healthy, so they had no pre-existing conditions, although COVID is more likely to have a negative health outcome in children with pre-existing conditions, it is also important to note that children who were healthy um, are having symptoms. And children who present with moderate or severe COVID are at greater risk for heart disease. And I talked about Miss C. And so What's really critical to note for our children is that this disease is preventable with a vaccine. And the vaccine has been tested. Again, it's not experimental. I talked about this before, so we can go to the next slide. Um, the Pfizer pediatric study, uh, which took place here in the United States, had about 4,500 children aged 5 to 11. It began in recruiting children in June, and children have been followed up for two to five months. Uh, the children received a third of the dose uh, that um, adults received, and again, that was um, due to some of the phase two studies that happened in the spring, looking at uh, side effects and immune responses. Um, and what is really critical to note in children, next slide, is that most children have no side effects. You know, side effects are incredibly rare in children. If they do have side effects, the most common side effects are local side effects. So pain at the site of injection, swelling, tenderness, and there are other side effects that are much less common, the systemic side effects, which include fatigue, headaches, nausea, fever. But I think it's important to note that less than 7% of the children who were vaccinated had a fever. And again, the, when the children did have side effects, they were most common after the second dose, but very, very rare. So often people ask about myocarditis, which is the inflammation of the heart muscle. And this you know, can sometimes happen when the immune system reacts to an infection. And I think it's critical to note that as of today, we have seen no myocarditis after COVID vaccination in children aged five to 11. Mostly when we have seen cases of myocarditis, it's been in teenage and young adults aged 16 to 25. And again, it's very, very rare, uh, including in 12 to 15 year old boys who, and who it happens more often in. Again, it's generally following the second dose. And the American Academy of Pediatrics reported in August of this year that myocarditis risk is 37 times higher for children with COVID. So about two to 10% of kids who are admitted into the hospital with COVID have myocarditis. And if you look at the risk of myocarditis in teenagers, again, we haven't seen any of this in younger kids, the risk is 0.002% to 0.006% comparing that to 37 
you know, the 37 times higher for children with COVID. So, you know, end of story, COVID vaccines are available for kids. I've had my eight-year-old vaccinated. Uh, they get a lower dose and there are lots of resources in Alaska that you can tap into to ensure that your child receives the vaccine. And these are all from your state. There are many reasons to vaccinate. Again, COVID is very preventable in children and a vaccine is the best defense for this. And all of this comes from your Department of Health uh, from Alaska. So thank you all and apologies for the mix up in the slide set. Thank you so much. What a great presentation. Um, we are really grateful, very powerful. So I would like to um, invite um, the panelists to provide a few minutes of any thoughts that you have regarding the presentation. And um, Dr. Bishop, if you want to go first, and then Dr. Leisha, you can go next. Sure, I just want to say uh, thank you for the presentation. And um, I think uh, the science behind the vaccine and that explanation really will help our parents and our families. Um, ASD uh, will continue our vaccination sites to support families and children uh, for an easy place uh, to go get a vaccine if you'd like. Thank you so much, Dr. Alicia. I don't really have anything to add. I'm just interested to hear what questions people have. Okay. How about Dr. Zink? Any any comments? All right. So, Dr. Alicia, if you want to take this question, what is the recommendation for children getting the COVID nineteen vaccine? Like, what recommendations do you have for them? So, um, and we are as part of the as a pediatrician, as a pediatric endocrine takes care of kids with really severe and complicated diseases. Um, and as part of the um, healthcare community, we are recommending that all children who are eligible, so those are kids from five to 18 and older, um, get vaccinated. Um, currently, the only available vaccine for kids um, younger than 18 is the Pfizer vaccine. Um, but we know that Moderna and um, Johnson Johnson are studying it in those age groups. And so we'll get more information about that. But um, the basic recommendation is to get vaccinated. And if you're concerned about your child's underlying illness, then talk with your healthcare provider. Thank you. So I hear you say that currently we just have the Pfizer. So if someone were interested in Johnson & Johnson or Moderna, like what do they have to do? Can they wait or would you advise them to just go for Pfizer? I do not advise waiting. Um, we know that COVID is spreading wildly in our community and in our country and in our world. And so um, the sooner that we can get people vaccinated, um, the sooner that they'll be protected and that we'll be able to decrease the spread of this deadly virus. Um, so we aren't recommending that people wait even for kids who are 11 and about to turn 12, we are not recommending that you wait until you turn 12. Um, and so we're recommending that people get vaccinated as soon as, as possible for their own protection and the protection of the others they care about. So thank you, Dr. Zink. When we come to Alaska, why now? You know, what, what steps were taken for us to be able to make this recommendation? Yeah, no, thank you so much. I would echo many of the things that were said. These vaccines are incredibly safe. They're incredibly efficacious. Went through the data that was shown, really looking at your individual children, looking at children as a whole. Are they more at risk for COVID or are they more at risk from the vaccine? Nothing we do in life is risk-free, but right now we have a lot of COVID spreading. And the reason for this vaccine is to protect our kiddos as well as the families that they live with. And that may be their siblings that are less than five that currently get vaccinated as well as the elders and grandparents and loved ones who also need to be there for them. And so it really helps to protect that kid as well as the community as a whole. And just as Dr. Lesher recommended, I would not wait. We have a lot of COVID. Uh, we look at these different alert levels. Alaska right now is still in the high alert level with just under 400 cases per 100,000. It has been coming down, but we have been one of the highest states in the nation for over a month. Uh, and while it is getting better, it's still a lot of COVID uh, circulating right now. And so now is the time to get your child vaccinated. Plus, it's a fantastic time thinking about the holidays coming up and the gatherings. We all want to put COVID behind us. 
And the faster we get people protected with vaccination, the sooner we're able to put this behind us and our kids can have sleepovers and they can go to school and not have to worry about having to quarantine and give grandma and grandpa gigantic hugs for the holiday season and enjoy it. So for all of those reasons, really encourage you to get your kid vaccinated now and not wait. Wow. Thank you so much. That's, that's powerful evidence for why we need to do this. Dr. Andresik, when you were presenting your data, um, you did still mention how a lot of, you know, the um, underserved population are still being affected by COVID, right? And so my question to you is, how was the vaccine tested for children? Um, do you believe that, um, you know, various ethnic and racial um, backgrounds were included in the clinical trials? And hopefully that would encourage more of ethnic people to feel like, you know, um, I want to participate in this because the trial involved people from my population. So would you like to answer that for us? Yeah, I can. And, and, you know, in full disclosure, my eight-year-old was in the Pfizer study. She was one of the participants here at uh, Seattle Children's in Seattle. Um, and I uh, did everything I could to get her into that trial and uh, hopefully her be one of the 60% of the kids who were in the vaccine arm. She was just unblinded last Thursday, or was it, no, two Thursdays ago, and she's been fully vaccinated since the beginning of January. And my partner and I, my husband and I literally danced uh, when we were on speakerphone, when we did the unblinding, and we danced, and I was crying, and because uh, my baby has been protected since July and that feels really, really good. So, so yes, the trials were diverse. There were African-American, uh, American Indian, Alaska Native, uh, Asian Pacific Islander, uh, white uh, children in the trials. And I think, you know, more importantly, we had children who had pre-existing conditions in the trials, uh, children for whom if they did get um, uh, COVID uh, could really result in some negative health outcomes for them. So there, there was um, a great deal of diversity and, you know, I'm proud to have been, or I'm proud that my daughter wanted to step up and be one of the diverse participants in the trial. I'm really proud of her. She was a brave heroine for doing that for her and her fellow students and children across the country and really around the world. Wow, please say a big thank you to her for participating in the clinical trials and representing so many thousands of patients, you know, um, to come in the future who are going to be using all these amazing uh, medical vaccines. So thank you so much, we, we really appreciate it. So this goes to um, Dr. Alicia. So does it protect against all variants, the, the vaccine? So far, yes. So the um, COVID vaccine, the mRNA Pfizer vaccine primarily, which is the one we're talking about for kids, um, has been shown to be effective. Nothing is 100% effective. And we, as people know, are seeing some breakthrough infections with um, the Delta variant, which is much more contagious than the original COVID and then the other variants that um, we currently know of. Um, but the vaccine is still protecting most people against Delta variant. Um, and someone else could give the actual number because I forget what the actual um, number is for the Delta variant specifically. Um, but the other thing that I thought was super interesting is that um, as Dr. Andrasik said, the COVID or the mRNA vaccine helps give the recipe for your body to make that spike protein. And so even if a variant came up that didn't have the spike protein that, you know, potentially we wouldn't have the um, protection for, um, what it seems to be is that spike protein is very important for the coronavirus to be able to infect ourselves. And so with if a variant were to crop up without the spike protein, it probably wouldn't be very effective or efficient at causing infection. And so we can you know, suspect that the, um, or the vaccine will be 
likely effective against future variants as well. And the other thing that we know is that by getting a majority of our population vaccinated, we can help decrease the spread of the coronavirus, which then helps decrease um, the virus's ability to mutate and come up with new variants. So, so far, um, the answer is yes, it is effective against all variants, and it's especially effective at preventing serious disease and death. Um, and so we're uh, excited about that, even if sometimes people are getting asymptomatic infections. And then one other thing that we're finding out is that for people that do get breakthrough infections, the infections tend to be milder if they're vaccinated and the amount of time that they can spread the virus to others, like the amount of time that they have active virus in their like nasal passages that can be coughed or spread to others is much shorter. And so um, we have a lot of really great benefits from the vaccine, even if someone does have a breakthrough infection. Wow, thank you. Thank you for sharing with us that um, it gives strong protection um, all around. So Dr. Um, Andresik, do you want to add anything else to um, what Dr. Alicia has just shared? I think the only thing I would say is that, you know, 99.7% of the people who are hospitalized uh, are uh, not vaccinated. And I think that that says a lot about uh, the protection of the vaccine in terms of people getting hospitalized and potentially dying. Thank you. So Dr. Bishop, when we talk about those who are not vaccinated and those getting into the hospitals and being admitted, parents are still kind of hesitant and wondering, should I do this? Should I not? So do kids really need it? What are you hearing in the schools? Like, do they really need to get the, the vaccine? Sure. Well, um, thank you for that question. And as been, has been stated before, it is a safe vaccine. It uh, helps kids not experience the virus. Uh, as badly as they would perhaps if they, they weren't vaccinated. So it is a safe vaccine. Um, as was stated as well, um, when children are vaccinated, they protect those around them. Uh, and so uh, we would just encourage it. Again, our work uh, with our school nurses and our vaccine clinic is to uh, make it available uh, in times that uh, we don't have to pull kids out of school. <laughs> they missed enough. And so uh, we have after school clinics. And thus far, uh, we've vaccinated um, between five and 11, about 2,000 uh, students. Wow, thank you so much. That's that's a good number. <laughs> I see Dr. Zink smiling. Um, I'm sure that's good for public health safety too. But, you know, the more I thought about this and, you know, kids coming to school, I had this question, two parts. One, um, is COVID required for, um, you know, the kids to come to school? And then the second part is, what if there's confusion if mom says no, yes and dad says no, then what, what do you do? I mean, like, as, <laughs> does the school come in? So can you shed a bit of light on how to deal with those challenging situations at home? Um, sure. So uh, the vaccination is not mandatory in our state. Um, and our, we do have uh, mandatory school vaccinations and their statutory requirements. And so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, right now, we're uh, encouraging people to uh, take advantage of this vaccine, especially uh, with the convenience of how it can be given rather than, um, you know, going to a, a pharmacy or their doctor. Uh, they could uh, just come, come to school and, and we'll help them uh, get the vaccine. As far as moms and dads, um, we just like to do what we're doing today, educate, educate, educate. So uh, the school does not want to get in between families. We just want to share the information uh, so that families can make the best decision. And uh, I believe that uh, when they um, are able to talk to their school nurses, other moms and dads have the real information on for forums like this, 
they're going to come to some really good decision making in regard to their children and their health. Let me add, there's one other thing that I would just want to add, you know, just as Dina Bishop said, there's no requirement in the state of Alaska. Some of our school districts are requiring it for travel or for sports teams. So depending on where you're at in the state of Alaska, there are some places, there are also some communities that are requiring it to enter into their community. So always check like local communities and in those requirements. But the other thing I would just mention about the moms and dads is talk to your pediatrician. So this can be a lot, and this has been a lot of noise, and it's been really confusing, and it can be really, really overwhelming at times. But, you know, just as Dr. Andrzejczyk did, it's great to hear her daughter being in the study. I mean, almost every physician that I know and work with was begging to have their children in a study, and some of them, and from Alaska, flew to Seattle to try to get their kids enrolled because it was so important to them. 94% of physicians are vaccinated themselves and have chosen to do it. So when you see this on a regular basis, when you see what this can do to kids, and when you see how sick it can make people, it's really much easier to not underestimate the risk of COVID and to also understand the science behind why these are safe and effective and that your body destroys them within hours to days. They don't last in a long time. And what's left is your normal healthy immune system taught by the vaccine how to take down the virus. And so I think a lot of the concerns about long-term side effects and other things are really valid. They're super important, but talk to your pediatrician about them. Talk to someone who this is their space and their expertise and bring mom and dad. If you're having a disagreement, have both of them come. So both can really share their thoughts and concerns and together you can make a decision for your child, but get that expertise, not Facebook. Thank you so much. That's very helpful information for those with a bit of disagreement on yes or no and whether or not to get it. So thank you very much. Now, the question that um, you know we've had out there is also about which vaccines can I get? And what I mean is, are the kids getting the same type of vaccine that the adults are getting? Any one of you can please answer that for us. Are the five to 11 year olds getting a much lower dose? I mean, like, how does that all work? How, if you could explain that for us, we really appreciate it. Yeah, I can talk about that a little bit. So, so the way that the COVID vaccines have worked is really the way that we've always done vaccine development in this country. So once we had a dose for adults, then we started, you know, looking at what an appropriate dose would be for uh, 12 to 17 year olds, and they figured out that dose. And then once they figured out that dose, then they start testing what dose would be most appropriate for um, five to 11 year olds. And that happened last spring when they were really running the phase two test to try to figure out what dose would be both safe and produce the immune response that was necessary to provide protection um, for our children. So, you know, once they formulated the dose, and again, the Pfizer dose is a third that of what is given to adults. So, um, uh, and again, that uh, was testing was done in the spring and uh, it was found to be safe and effective in all the children that were tested uh, in Pfizer. And Pfizer was really the first company out of the gate. You know, that's why we have the Pfizer vaccine because they enrolled children quicker and were able to sort of get things going. Um, Moderna is not too far behind. So I imagine that we'll see a Moderna vaccine uh, relatively shortly and it'll get EUA approval as well because it's using basically the same technology, the mRNA uh, vaccine, just a different company. Um, but yeah, right now, all that's available is Pfizer. And Pfizer is incredibly effective for children five to 11-year-olds. And they're also um, you know, actively uh, enrolling children from birth to, to four. So hopefully in the not too far um, future, we'll be seeing vaccines roll out for younger children. So those um, under five. Uh, but again, this, is, this all goes the way we've always tested vaccines in this country, where we start with adults and then back our way into younger children because the number one focus in all of these clinical trials for vaccines is safety, 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 safety. One thing I would just add that I found confusing at first, um, but then when I learned it, it made more sense. So the dose is not weight dependent. So we know that like, you know, in general, kids weigh less than adults, but not always. 
In this situation with vaccines, the dose is actually based on the amount of immune response that kids are able to make compared to adults. And so we know that kids are able to have a stronger immune response than older, than even older kids, 12 to 17, and then adults. And so that's why that they're able to have a lower dosage that's still effective and works. Thank you so much. Um, that's very helpful. My follow-up question to that is, what if by the time a child gets the first dose, for example, they're 11 and then they 10, 12 or whatever, is it still going to be the same dose that they got the first time or is it going to increase? Dr. Zenka or Dr. Oisha, one of you can respond to that. There's been a lot of great questions about that. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of kids that change age around that time zone. The most important thing is that they get both shots. And so the current recommendation is just to continue your series. So if you got the pediatric dose to go ahead and get it, but if they get the adult series, it's not considered a medication error. It's not a big deal. I think it's important to remember that the difference between vaccines and like medications or therapeutics is we're just giving our bodies a little tiny bit to be able to have a good, strong, robust immune response. And just like Dr. Lesher mentioned, kids have amazing responses to the immune system. They you know, are being exposed to viruses all the time and their body learns these things really quickly. And that really good learning is what makes it only take a little bit. But if they got a little bit more when they're 12 and they just turned over, it's no big deal. We've had some patients who uh, have gotten a lot of vaccines, let me just tell you, uh, cause they um, were going for prizes and other such things even though those can be medication errors. So uh, this is well below any sort of kind of toxic level. And if you got a, a higher dose or a second dose, it's definitely not the end of the world in any, in any regard. So I just, I want, I think sometimes people think that if they got two shots, it'd be a big deal. So stick with the same one, but if you happen to get the adult one, once they turned, uh, you know, 12, it's, it's not a big deal. It's not a medication error. They will be fine and well-protected to either direction. Wonderful. So um, where can, parents or, you know, caregivers find um, all of this information so that it's accurate information for them um, on the vaccines and what the child should get and all that, especially for um, parents who come to school, for parents who come to the clinic, and also um, Dr. Zeng when you're sharing information to the general public. So basically my question is going to all three of you, where can we get accurate scientific information to educate ourselves? So I've kind of given an overview of a few things just in Alaska specifically. Clearly always talking to your pediatrician or your local provider is great. If you don't have one, talking to the school nurse. We have amazing school nurses. You know, Dr. Bishop and team are here and, and can help direct you as well uh, and kind of help give additional information. The state of Alaska has a call line that's staffed seven days a week and includes language translation and interpreters with a live Alaskans there to answer your questions and help to find you a vaccine. And I'll put the number in the chat box, but that's 907-646-3322. So seven days a week, we have that call line to help you find one. We also have a public science Zoom, much like this, every Wednesday from 12 until 1. We have pediatricians on, we have immunologists, we have epidemiologists, myself come, we have a whole team and we're happy to answer any question from Alaskans about the vaccine, about safety, about efficacy. We have a, a physician who's a pediatrician just specialized in schools. We have another one who her entire job is really kind of paying attention to the vaccine data and what that looks like. We have an entire vaccine team and they come to that meeting to answer your questions. So we really encourage people to come there. We have additional ones associated with healthcare workers. And then we also have our COVID website, which has a lot of handouts and a lot of information on it within the DHSS website. And so that's just covid.alaska.gov. So I'll put all those things in the chat box, but there's a lot more additional national tools as well. So I'll turn it over. And I will just say, you know, uh, we at the COVID-19 Prevention Network have um, uh, a website at preventcovid.org uh, and we have uh, FAQs, uh, frequently asked questions sheets. We have infographics. Uh, we've worked really hard to ensure that we um, have put things there that are easy to understand and that you can share with your family and friends if they have any questions. And we have information in uh, Spanish and in English. Um, and on adult vaccines and uh, pediatric vaccines. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pose one more question and then we'll go to 
um, always send to see if we have any questions in the chat box. But we all know that there is truly some fear out there. And some of it is coming from misinformation. People do not believe in the vaccine and um, they feel like their kids are already strong. They have good immune system. Why do we want to do this? So how are you addressing these fears? Like, you know, um, and what kind of responses are you giving to them? I'm happy to start. I think it's really important to acknowledge those fears uh, and know that they're real and they're important. I have not met a family that doesn't care about their kids. I have not met an unvaccinated person who is unvaccinated because they want to get sick or they want their community to be sick or they want their businesses to close. People are trying to make the best decisions they have and they possibly can in a lot of noise and a lot of misinformation. So I think we need to have compassion for each other and realize that those questions are real and that they're valid and we need to listen to them. And we need to break down where they came from and help to understand uh, where we're at and why we're there. A lot of the misinformation and disinformation that's out there feeds on really natural fears, things like fertility, long-term side effects, you know, not knowing what the future holds. We all don't know what the future holds, but what we do have is a scientific process, which helps us to understand the patterns that happen in the natural world and help us to understand how we can best address them. And that's what this scientific process has done and will continue to learn and it will continue to change as we continue to learn moving forward. So I think we just need to realize that we are, we're all in this together and to acknowledge those fears and concerns uh, and find a way uh, to help share um, and acknowledge those and, and find a path forward. I would also state that I think at this point in the pandemic, um, people have become very set in their ways. And I think sometimes giving people an off ramp uh, instead of directly confronting them. So instead of challenging, these are your thoughts or reasons, potentially finding a new way to think about the problem can help get us unstuck from really stuck feelings and fears in this space uh, and to have a different perspective. And the last thing I would say is we're humans and we share by stories and by celebration and by being human and not just data and data points. And so being able to share the humanity of what this has been like with each other, as well as the humanity of being healthy and well and caring for each other, I think gets us a lot farther sometimes than uh, just getting into a lot of data points where we can spend a lot of time. It's really important we have the data. It's important we're transparent about the data, um, but I think it's also important to remember how human we are in this process. Thank you so much. I. I like the compassion and the humanity pieces that you bring into this. That's so wonderful. Because um, I know there's so much fear out there. Alison, do we have any questions in the chat box that you want to share with the panelists, please? Yeah, we have, we have a few. Um, a, a quick one for Dr. Bishop. Can the general public get vaccinated at the ASD clinics or are those just for students? That's a great question. They are open to the general public. So uh, many of our parents who were eligible um, and grandparents for a booster, they uh, came in with their five to 11 year olds. So it is open. You can just um, register online and, and uh, uh, go through the process. It's a mass clinic. And so generally um, it takes about an hour to get through it from the time you register to wait to get your shot to uh, have the waiting period. Um, afterwards. Great, thank you. Um, and then another question for the panel. Um, uh, an attendee says, we have a large number of refugees recently arriving to Anchorage. Many are school age. Are they willing and able to get boosters or first shots if they did not have them before entering the country? Through ASD, uh, yes, we are offering all of our students, um, especially uh, our newcomers, um, their vaccinations. Uh, the school-based uh, vaccinations, as well as this COVID one. So uh, we're just supporting uh, wrapping around services to our newcomers uh, to get them registered and in school as soon as possible. Um, another question maybe for Dr. Lesher, Dr. Zink. Um, what would you say to people who prefer to depend on treatments like ivermectin or other unproven meds rather than vaccines? Can you share anything along these lines based on your experience in the ER? Yeah, I'm happy to start there. So I cannot think of a disease where I would recommend treatment over prevention. In general, it's a really good idea to prevent things. Uh, so we do a lot of things to help protect ourselves. Like think about when you get in a car, you seatbelt, we make sure we have airbags, but we still recommend not hitting a tree in the first place. And so vaccines are really our best tool. They help to prevent you from getting as sick as well as being able to take down that virus really quickly. I would also say that viruses are hard to treat. Vaccines work well for viruses. 
viruses use our cells to replicate. And because of that, they can be really hard to target in terms of treatment. They work much better with our immune system to be able to take down the virus. And we have many examples of viruses where we don't have good treatment options, but we have amazing vaccines that have essentially eliminated or nearly eliminated diseases. Treatments can be an important tool once people start to get sick from it. But again, you wanna be prepared when you see this virus. And the best way to be prepared is if your immune system, when it gets, you know, if I see Dina Bishop and she's got COVID and she coughs on me <laughs> and she's got it and I'm vaccinated, my cells are set and ready to go. And so they can help to start take, take down that virus really quickly. But maybe they got a head start and they're starting to get in and I still get sick. Treatment can be a useful tool. I would say it's not nearly as useful as prevention. Right now, our best treatment option out there are monoclonal antibodies, which are able to be given to kids up to 12. So not quite the same young group, but uh, we can give it to some kids, particularly high risk and moving forward. And we continue to learn new things about treatments on a regular basis. There's some new treatments coming down the pike uh, actually later this month that we're trying to get ready for, for distribution. Uh, and we're constantly learning about other meds that have been previously used, medications like dexamethasone, look to work fairly well once you're really, really sick and in the hospital. And so those are repurposed meds that we use on a regular basis. So again, I would recommend prevention. I would recommend vaccination because that's how we really deal with viruses. But if you do get COVID-19, talk to your doctor because there may be treatment options that are right for you. And we'll continue to learn more as we continue to add more. The last thing I would state is that always at the base of this is your physical and mental health. There is never a bad time to invest in your physical and mental health. So even though it's been negative 10, get outside, play, take care of each other, stay connected, that helps to build your immune system, that helps you to fight viruses, that helps make these vaccines work better. And so I never want to miss an opportunity to not focus on that physical and mental health part regardless uh, of the overall treatment. So that is a key part of treatment regardless. Wow, how quickly the hour went by. I wish we could keep going, but I am so grateful to each one of you for what you've brought to this discussion, all the information and the data and the recommendations and the reassurance. And then above all, your heartfelt compassion, everything that we are going through with COVID. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, at this point, I would like to um, go to Joelle and um, she'll give us a closing statement. Thank you, Teresa. And once again, the panel, you guys are just absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom and your knowledge with all of us. Thank you for, of course, to our uh, participants also for joining us this evening. We want to thank our caucus members, Allies for Change group, and their, for their continuous support of our programs. If you'd like to join our great organization or link to Allies for Change group within the Alaska Black Caucus, please visit alaskablackcaucus.com. We would also like to thank the municipality of Anchorage. This program was supported by a grant awarded by the municipal Anchorage Health Department. The opinions, findings, and conclusions, recommendations expressed tonight and the program and exhibitions are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the municipality of Anchorage Health. Join us right here next Sunday for a dialogue with the Anchorage Assembly regarding that important subject, redistricting. Until next time, good night everyone. And thank you for joining us tonight. Alaska Black Caucus, authentic, bold, commitment.